Everyone has a worldview. Do you know what yours is and why you hold it? This is Evidence and Answers with Christian scholar and apologist Pat Zucharin. Today, you'll hear Pat as he speaks before a live audience on worldviews and the existence of God. Christianity faces uh, many challenges, doesn't it? Our faith is constantly being challenged by the world around us. And before I begin, I want to introduce you to two pretty good apologetic websites. First one is probe.org. It's the ministry that I work for. There's over a couple thousand articles you're going to find on that website on every issue that you can think of. What is the Christian response to terrorism? What is the whole idea behind just war? What is the Christian position behind cloning and genetic engineering? And the other one, evidenceandanswers.org. Uh, that's the radio show that I host. We're heard on 16 stations all along the West Coast, from Alaska all the way down to San Diego, and then we check across the Arizona, Oklahoma, right into Arkansas. Christianity faces many challenges, and we're exhorted by the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone for the hope that you have within you, but always do this with gentleness and respect. Apologetics begins with worldviews. Now, apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith. It's giving evidence for why we believe what we believe. It's giving evidence and compelling reasons for why we believe Christianity to be true. The defense of the Christian faith begins with worldviews. What is a worldview? Worldview is a set of presuppositions or basic assumptions, basic beliefs we hold about the basic makeup of our world. Every one of you has a worldview, whether you can articulate it or not. Everyone has a particular worldview. They form the foundations of all our belief systems and ideology. And modern man is faced with a supermarket of worldviews, all of them claiming to be true. How do we know what your worldview is? Well, it's how you answer these eight key questions that every human being must answer. If your worldview cannot answer these questions, you've got an incomplete worldview. These are eight questions that everyone around the world, every human being who can manage cognitive thinking, every reasonable human being asks throughout their lifetime. What is the nature of God? Is there a God? Or is there not a God? What explains the origin of the universe? Why is the universe here? Why are we here? Are we an accident with no intended purpose? Or was there a purpose for our existence here? Number three, what is reality? How do we explain the world around us? How do we explain our experiences? Number four, how do you explain human nature? How do you explain that we can do great good and courageous acts of love, but also turn around and do great acts of evil at the same time? How do you explain that paradox in human nature? How do you know that you know? Knowledge. What is the basis of knowledge? How do you know that you know? Is there an immaterial essence? How do you determine right from wrong? Ethics. And finally, what is the meaning of history? Are we moving towards some kind of story with some kind of purpose? Are we just going in some kind of endless cycle till we all cease to exist? What is the meaning of our existence here? What is the meaning of history? The answer to those eight questions determines your worldview. Now, here we go. Three major worldviews. What's the first one? Theism. Theism says that God made all. That God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. There is a personal God who created all things. Number two is naturalism. No God at all. As Carl Sagan stated, the universe is all that ever was, is, and ever will be. There is no supernatural being out there. The universe is what we call Closed. The universe is all that there is. And the last one is what? Pantheism. Pan means all. Theism is God. 
God is not a person in pantheism. God is a force. He's a it. Made up of all things in the universe. All things in the universe make up God. Okay? That's pantheism. You're a part of God. I'm a part of God. God is not a person. He's the one. The divine. The force. We are all like drops, and God is the great ocean. We are drops in that ocean. Everything in the universe makes up a part of God. Movie Star Wars is a good illustration of the worldview of pantheism. Those are the three major worldviews. And these form the foundation okay, of all religions and philosophies and ideas that are out there. Darwinism, existentialism, or communism, or socialism, southern Buddhism, they're built on the worldview of naturalism. Pantheism forms the foundation for the animistic religions or the religions under Hinduism or the New Age. These form the foundation of all the religions and philosophies that are out there. A worldview is like a pair of glasses through which you see the entire world and interpret your life experience. If you got the wrong prescription, you're going to have a wrong perspective on reality. Here's an important point. All three worldviews cannot be true at the same time and because they're teaching mutually contradictory positions a the naturalist and the theist can't be right at the same time you can't say there is a god and there is no god and both positions are true at the same time because they're teaching opposite same point if one is true the other two must be false and third if your foundational premise is false the ultimate conclusions that you're going to come to will also be false the three major worldviews, all of them cannot be true at the same time. If one of them is true, then the other two must ultimately be false. That's why we start apologetics at the worldview level. If you can show that we live in a theistic universe, that a God exists, then the worldviews of naturalism and pantheism must be false. Not only that, the ideas and philosophies and religions built upon their foundation must also ultimately be false. So if you can show that we live in a theistic universe, okay, then the other two worldviews must ultimately be false, and the ideologies that are built upon its foundation must ultimately be false. Does the evidence show that we live in a theistic universe? Does the evidence show that God exists? Well, that's what we're going to study. Christianity has always been in an engaged challenge with the other worldviews. In Acts chapter 17, verse 18, Paul encounters two groups of philosophers there. It says in that passage, as Paul was in Athens, reasoning with the Jews, he also came upon two groups of people. So the group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And there in Acts 17, in Athens on Mars Hill, in that great center of learning in Athens, you have a clash of all three worldviews right there. The Epicureans, they were practical atheists. And they would have the naturalist worldview. They believed that the ultimate goal in life was pleasure. The Stoics were the pantheists. And they believed that there is the one, the divine. And the goal of every man was to get in tune with the one, the divine. And then you have Paul, who was the Christian theist. And there on Mars Hill, you have a clash of all three worldviews. And if you study it, Paul's approach in apologetics there is the approach that we're taking today. That's why we're beginning at the level of worldviews. Now, does God exist? Do we have evidence that we can reasonably conclude that a God exists, that we live in a theistic universe? I think there's compelling evidence that we can reasonably conclude there is a God who created all things. A great place to start 
when you defend the existence of God, is with the other person's presuppositions or his particular worldview and bring it, walk him down to its logical conclusion. Okay? So for the atheist, often, okay, if, if you have someone who comes and says that he is an atheist, most of the time, 90% of atheists that I've talked to have not come to the ultimate conclusion of their particular worldview. So what you want to do is present to them the natural conclusion of the atheistic worldview. If God does, let's just say you're right. If you're talking with your atheist friend here, let's just say you're right. God does not exist. What does that ultimately mean for you and for me? Let's just say you're right. What that ultimately means is this. And without God, man lives in a universe void of significance, meaning, and hope. If God does not exist, if atheism is true, then there is no significance to our existence here. There really is no ultimate meaning or purpose. There really is no ultimate hope. What do I mean by that? Well, one day, okay, the universe will cease to exist. Okay, research shows that the universe is expanding, okay, and as it expands, it uses up energy and gets colder. And at some time, it's going to expand, and eventually, the stars will die, and the universe will reach a state of final entropy, okay, and the universe will come to its end. As the universe, so mankind, you and I, will one day cease to exist. And the only certain thing we have to look forward to is our extinction, your extinction and the extinction of mankind. To cease to exist, never to see your loved ones again. That's the only sure hope that you have if you're a naturalist. Then you've got to ask the question, what difference did it ever make that mankind existed in this universe? What difference did it ever make that you and I were here? If ultimately in the end, everything comes to extinction. What difference does it make that when you die, that's it? You're food for worms, and that's it. Ultimately, you're going to have to come to the conclusion that it was a meaningless, purposeless existence. We're here for just a brief moment in time, then we go extinct forever and ever, never to see our loved ones again. Let's make this uh, personal. You and I will one day cease to exist. Life is a brief transition from existence to extinction. And there is really no ultimate hope when the only sure thing we have to look forward to is our extinction and death. Death of mankind and death of the universe. The bottom line is that the only certainty we face is death. Our death, the death of mankind, the death of our solar system, and the ultimate death of the universe. When you think about it, and when you really ponder and think about its implications, you realize, really, we're in a dark and cold universe, void of significance, meaning, and hope. And that's not only a conclusion, you know, that's not a conclusion that uh, we Christians came to. The atheists themselves have pointed out those conclusions. How many of you have read uh, Ernest Hemingway, Old Man and the Sea? If you read Ernest Hemingway's writings, and you find them to be very dark and very sad. Why? Well, he was an atheist. And how did he end his life? He shot himself in the head. Okay? Old Man and the Sea is a book that we all uh, had to read in high school. And it's classic existentialism, naturalistic existentialism. Life is ultimately meaningless, right? The old man lived in a fishing village, right? And he was not a respected fisherman because he'd gone for about 40 days without catching anything. And so everyone in the village really didn't look highly upon him. And his dream was one day to win the respect of all the villagers by making that great catch. The only person that visited Santiago, the old man, was just a little boy, right? Well, one day, Santiago gets in his little schooner and he goes out 
far, far out into the ocean, as far as he's ever gone, and he catches a huge marlin, right? And for three days and three nights, he's wrestling with that marlin until finally he's able to subdue that marlin, bring it in, and he clubs it to death, right? And Hemingway goes on to describe how he ultimately kills the marlin. But it's so huge, what's the problem that he has? doesn't sit on his little schooner. So what does he do in the story? Well, he ties it to the side of his schooner, and now he's rowing into shore. Now he's found purpose, meaning, and significance in his life, because no one has ever caught a marlin this huge. And when he comes into that village, he's going to win the respect and admiration of everyone in that village. Everything that he's ever been working for, he's finally going to get. Right? And as he's rowing into shore, what happens in the story? Sharks smell the blood. Right? And the first shark comes and he's able to fight it off with a spear, but then he loses the spear in that fight. Then the second wave of sharks come and they begin to tear away at the flesh of the marlin. Right? And he begins to fight them off with his paddle and he ties his knife to his paddle and tries to fight all the sharks off as they begin tearing away at his dream, his purpose, his meaning, his significance in life. But his uh, knife breaks in the battle and, and when the third wave comes, all he has is a little club to fight off those sharks and those sharks eat everything. And when he comes in the shore, what does he have? Nothing. Nothing. And he says he carried his mass and collapsed three times on his way home and thus ends the story of old man in the sea. Now that's Hemingway's existential philosophy that life is ultimately meaningless. You know, every day humans, we go to work thinking that, uh, you know, we go out into the sea thinking we're going to find meaning, purpose in life. When I get into that university that I'm dreaming of getting, when I get that dream job I've always wanted, when I get that corner office, when I get the house I want, when I get the family I want, we, sh we go out to sea every day striving for meaning and purpose and significance and hope in life. And when we finally get there, we think we've got something that will give us all of that, and when we roll back to shore, what do we find? The sharks of reality eat away at our marlin. And when we come to the end of the day, we realize what? It's ultimately meaningless. I'm going to work here. I'm going to die. I'm going to be extinct. My work here will be forgotten. What was the meaning and purpose behind it all? And we're left with just fish bones. I was talking to an atheist on the radio, and he said, well, that's the conclusion you came up with. And I said, no, no, no. I'm simply repeating what you atheists have already stated. The great Bertrand Russell wrote this. He said, man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. But we didn't need the atheists to tell us that. And the Bible taught us that many centuries ago. Solomon, after living and attaining all the pleasures that the wealthiest man on earth could attain, having turned away from God, the scripture says, at the end of his life, what does he write in the book of Ecclesiastes? Same thing, right? 
Chapter 1, meaningless, meaningless is the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. There is no remembrance of men of old. Even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Ultimately, if God does not exist, if there's nothing beyond the grave, the only thing we have to look forward to is our extinction. And that's the future that we face, a dark, cold future with no significance, no meaning, no hope. I remember I was attending the Polani Conference, and it was a debate on intelligent design and philosophical naturalism. And the best scientists and philosophers from all over the world came to debate the whole idea. Is the universe intelligently designed or is it Darwinian evolution? And Steven Weinberg, the great Nobel Prize winning physicist and devout atheist from the University of Texas at Austin, stood up and he was really blasting the Christians. And then when he came near the middle of his speech, he just stopped for a moment, he paused and he said, but this whole idea that one day I will die and be extinct, never, ever, ever to see my loved ones ever again, that thought horrifies me. That's the word he used. He said, that thought utterly horrifies me. There's a man who came to understand the conclusion of the naturalist or atheist worldview. Hey, are we doomed hey, in such a meaningless existence? Well, evidence shows that indeed a God exists. The first argument for the existence of God is the argument from first cause. Or if you want to be, you know, you really want to impress your girlfriend, guys, it's called the cosmological argument. And the argument goes like this. It's very simple. Whatever has a beginning has a cause. It's called the basic law of causality. The universe has a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And also, basic to the law of causality, every cause has an effect, every effect has a cause. And no effect is greater than its cause. So whatever caused the universe, it's got to be greater than the universe. The universe has a beginning. It's not eternal. Therefore, pantheism cannot be true. In pantheism, God is the universe. Therefore, the universe is eternal. But all the scientific evidence shows that the universe has a beginning. And many scientists call it the Big Bang a huge explosion that brought the universe into existence. What the evidence is showing is that the universe has a beginning. And remember, whatever has a beginning has a cause. What is the cause of the universe? Robert Jastrow, one of the most authoritative astrophysicists of our day, he is chairman of the Mount Wilson Observatory, wrote this, the universe is blowing up before our eyes. In other words, the universe is still expanding at a rate of 100 trillion miles per hour. I mean, it's just expanding very, very quickly. The universe is blowing up before our eyes as if we are witnessing the aftermath of a gigantic explosion. The incident in which the cosmic bomb exploded marked the birth of the universe. And so the universe has a beginning. Scientists confirm the universe has a starting point. So it cannot be eternal. So pantheism cannot be true. So now you're left with two conclusions. Something caused the universe to come into existence, or what's the other alternative? Something, this great universe, came from nothing. And now of those two, 
Which one is the most reasonable conclusion? Something greater than the universe caused the universe or the universe came out of nothing? Which one is the more reasonable conclusion? Well, we know, okay? Logically, nothing produces nothing. All experience and all the sciences show nothing produces nothing. It's illogical to say that this great universe came from nothing. Nothing produces nothing. Whatever has a beginning has a cause. Something caused this universe to come into existence. The more and more we're discovering in the sciences, the more and more it's pointing to intelligent design. Hey, Christians, you don't need to be afraid of the sciences. Although it's dominated by the naturalists, there's nothing to be afraid of. Here's an atheist philosopher who just acknowledged the existence of a divine being, Anthony Flew. If you were in apologetics, the guy's argument you had to answer in our day was this man, Anthony Flew. He used to be an atheist. Recently, last year, he said this. Darwin saw that there was a problem with the origin of life. It is simply out of the question that the first living matter evolved out of dead matter and then developed into an extraordinary, complicated creature of which we have no examples. There must have been some intelligence. Him acknowledging an intelligent being is like, you know, Billy Graham converting to atheism or something. I and mean, he was the atheist champion. It's that significant, this man, Anthony Flew. And finally, we have what's called the moral argument. It comes from Romans chapter 2, where Paul talks about the law of God written on the hearts of every man, the human conscience, okay, that convicts us of right and wrong. Now, the moral argument goes like this. Every law has a lawgiver. There is an absolute law. Therefore, there is an absolute moral lawgiver. We have an intuitive sense of right and wrong. You don't have to argue with anyone to get them to believe that abusing and murdering a young child for fun is wrong. And you don't have to go up and, and present a case. You don't have to present a legal case that that's wrong. We all know it's wrong. You don't have to present any kind of argument to show that rape is wrong. You don't have to uh, present much of an argument to show that uh, genocide, wiping out an entire race just because they're Jewish or just because they're black, is wrong. We just know it is. And you didn't have to read any essay to know murder is wrong. Where does that intuitive sense of right and wrong come from? Where does that moral law come from? Must come from a moral lawgiver. C.S. Lewis, the one who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he was an atheist, came to Christ late in his life, and, and it was the argument of evil that brought him to Jesus Christ. And he says this, As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? Man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? The fact that we can identify evil points to an absolute moral standard of good from which we have deviated. Absolute moral law points to a moral lawgiver. One of the most compelling arguments for the existence of God. Here's some implications if God exists. Hey, if God exists, number one, we're designed to know our creator. Number two, we were designed for a purpose and to live a meaningful life. Number three, if theism is true, if God exists, then the worldview of naturalism and pantheism cannot be true. Number four, if God exists, Miracles are possible. In fact, they're more than possible. They're actual. The greatest one has already occurred. God created the universe out of nothing. All right? So is there any problem from, for God to part the ocean? Is there any problem for God to make the sun stand still? Is there any problem for God to resuscitate a dead body back to life? If you create the universe out of nothing, hey, then miracles are possible. They're more than possible. They're actual. 
And finally, God uses miracles to confirm his message. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. And right now, there's a free offer from Evidence and Answers. Pat's teaching on the Da Vinci Code deception. The Da Vinci Code book and movie will continue to impact the world for some time. And you can expect sequels and spinoffs to continue to influence people to doubt the claims of Jesus Christ. So get Pat's teaching on this important subject for free. It's yours for the asking. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and click on Contact Pat. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Don't forget about the free offer we have, Pat's teaching in front of a live audience on the Da Vinci Code deception. Go there now. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.